Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast. We appreciate you being here. If you're new to the podcast, we talk about the issues that matter to the 650,000 men and women working in the domestic maritime industry. We want to thank the American Maritime Partnership for making this podcast happen and for being the voice of these hardworking Americans. Not only do they move critical goods between American ports, but they are the eyes and ears of these same ports and our waterways. As we've seen during the pandemic, American maritime mariners rise to the occasion when our country needs them most. I'm Slada Fuentes, Secretary Treasurer of the American Maritime Partnership, and I'll be your host today. We have a very special guest, Mr. Jason Atwell. Jason is the Principal Advisor of Global Intelligence at Mandiant, the global leader in dynamic cyber defense and response. Jason has over 17 years of experience in cyber and risk intelligence from across the military, government, and commercial sectors. As a senior intelligence enablement consultant, Jason contributes to the intelligence used by many of the world's top governments and commercial entities to defend against targeted attacks. Jason also serves as an, as an intelligence officer in the US Army Reserve. Welcome, Jason. We are very pleased to have you with us today. No, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, let's learn a little bit more about you. Why did you decide to get into cybersecurity? So interestingly enough, I actually got into cybersecurity kind of by accident, uh, but I'm glad I did because it is a really interesting field. But as you mentioned, my background was, was in intelligence before I was ever in cybersecurity. And so uh, luck of the draw early on in my military career, some of the assignments I had involved uh, command and control analysis and tracking infrastructure and things like that. And so I learned a lot about communication networks, how they function, um, which obviously in this day and age leads directly to computers and, and cybersecurity. And so um, once I kind of got introduced to that, it was just a matter of sticking with it because it's it's a it's a fast-paced field. It's a really interesting field, um, and I think it's one that you know does a lot of good um, because there's not very many entities left at all, if any, that aren't touched by this problem set. Um, not least of which, you know, certain key uh, industrial and economic sectors. Yeah, for sure. That sounds really interesting. It sounds like you've had a, a really colorful career that gave you a lot of insight to some different different aspects. Yeah. Um, so what is it about critical infrastructure and maritime in particular that really interests you? So, yeah, I work mostly with government clients most of the time. Um, but critical infrastructure is an interesting one, and especially, you know, things like maritime ports, um, because when you deal with government clients enough, you learn a lot about sort of how the, I'll call it the hard side of the government is structured. So your actual government entities, how the DOD does things, how DHS does things. Um, but you also become keenly aware of the fact that, you know, it, and it's a bit of a of an obvious statement, but a lot of America's power lies in its economic base, and not least of which are those sort of dual-use entities that touch both the private sector economy, but also our ability to project military power, our national security enterprise. And so when you touch on things like ports, you've got these kind of um, – critical nodes that connect the government to private sector, um, and without them, certain functions can't be performed. And so not just the, you know, you look at COVID-19 and the economic impacts, but then also things like the current crisis in, in Ukraine, um, you know, a port becomes doubly important because it not only keeps our economy running, but it affects our ability to do things like move tanks overseas or supply troops in the field with um, you know, the necessary things like fuel and, and things like that. So 
Um, I ended, I've, I've been doing a lot of, I guess, thinking about maritime in particular because it does play so many roles when it comes to being able to perform other government functions and missions. That's so well said. You know, ports really do uh, do a lot for our country, and that's uh, a really interesting way to think about that. Um, and speaking of ports, I read a piece that you read uh, that you wrote in Maritime Executive last month entitled "Now Is the Time to Take Port Cybersecurity Seriously." Uh, can you tell us a bit about what motivated you to write that, especially at this time? Yeah, I mean, there's no time like a crisis, as everyone knows. But um, you know, I, I was we started tracking uh, this issue in in the Ukraine uh, way back because this this started becoming a problem in terms of the cyber threat environment and in what you know where it was leading um, way before it actually went um, you know kinetic last week and so it there was a lot of thought being put around you know we're already under pressure we already have clients that have all kind of issues with supply chain and in their security and their the resources that are available during economic contractions and things like that. And it's like, if, as if things weren't bad enough, now we've got another crisis on the horizon before the previous one has fully been able to be sorted out. And so it, to me, it was kind of an obvious like, hey, it we're, we're in a tough situation, but it's not too late to start to think about, you know, if this crisis drags out, if it becomes more confrontational directly between um, this, you know, Russia and the United States, you know, what are we doing to make sure that we're as resilient as possible in the face of that situation? And so, you know, I just kind of, I, I won't pretend that it's a super complex piece that answers any questions, but I, you know, just kind of throwing a flag out there to say, hey, you this know, is it, something we should yeah, pay attention it's to. like it, it, we're learning a lot about. You know, in, in the average American, in ways they probably weren't previously, is you know the word supply chain is now a, a household uh, phrase, um, and so it's like okay, we've got everyone's attention. Um, let's do something with it. Um, so it, it really just an attempt to frame that up and say, hey, it's not too late. Like there's there's stuff we can do. Well, that's a relief to hear that it's not not too late and that there's still action that can be taken. Um, let's dig in more a little bit about. Uh, about the uh, risk of cyber attacks on America's ports and supply chain. Uh, you mentioned Ukraine. Do you think this crisis in Ukraine has the potential to create uh, cyber issues in the maritime sector here in the United States? Yeah, because, I mean, we're dealing with one of, if not the most capable cyber adversaries in Russia. Um, they've got themselves into a situation where they're going to be looking for more and more options to try to either achieve their goals or, or be able to save face and extricate themselves from that situation. Um, it remains to be seen what that's going to mean. It, you know, the, the cyber activity that we've seen around that situation has been, I won't call it, you know, overly limited, but it's not been maybe as aggressive as some analysts might have expected. It also has been mostly um, contained in, in Eastern Europe. Um, but we've got a as everyone knows with all the talk around sanctions that's been in the media, there, there's an economic aspect of this that we're not used to in terms of the wars we've been involved in over the last you know couple decades. And so um, I think there's definitely the potential there, especially if Russia, again, starts looking for, for new ways to, to capitalize or um, try to you know, pull themselves out of a tough situation. So one of the easiest ways for them to do that would be to inflict the pain on our economy that we're inflicting on theirs. And an obvious place to start with that would be the shipping industry, because if, if nothing moves, 
then everybody is equally, you know, harmed by that rather than go directly at, say, the energy sector or manufacturing or aerospace, just degrade their ability to move their their supplies and, and their finished products around. Um, we've also seen, you know, the Black Sea is a major component of what's going on in the Ukraine. And so you see that, um, you know, the, the oil and gas industry, the, the pipelines in, in Ukraine are a huge part of this. And so they're heavily relying on ports to be able to, to, to function. And so if they're taking notes or they already have an idea of how they would, would cause havoc, um, you know, that's an obvious place for them to start. Um, we've seen that, you know, in the past, uh, I guess, uh, opportunistic ransomware attacks have you know, affected ports. And so there's your proof of concept. If, if it can be done in an opportunistic fashion, taking advantage of a situation, why can't it be done deliberately to further exacerbate the same situation? Um, and so I don't know if you want to transition into kind of like, okay, that's, that sounds awful. What do we do about it? <laughs> um, but like I said, you know, it's, it, we know a lot about Russian um, cyber tactics, techniques, and procedures from watching them for many, many years. And so the good news side of all this is that um, there are a lot of things you can do to at least harden yourself because it, it may not be a matter of if, it may be a matter of when Russia does certain things. Um, but being resilient, being able to continue to function even if you do experience you know, malicious Russian cyber activity is, that's really the name of the game because you can't defend everything all the time. But if you've got a complex network or you've got, um, you know, legacy systems with newer systems overlaid or you've got a, a complex supply chain, you know, there, there's things you can do to start to identify places you can place your resources to make sure that your cybersecurity posture is as, as good as can be in, in a terrible situation. That sounds very, very scary, but good to know that there's stuff you can do about it. You know, I, I noticed in a lot of your writing, you talked about the difference between, you know, resiliency versus risk assessment. Um, could you talk a little bit about that too? Yeah, because it's, it's not enough just to identify risks. I mean, risk management a lot of times ends up being a paper drill where you're like, okay, I'm aware that I have a risk here and I've documented it for the inspection that's coming up next quarter. It's another thing to say I've truly mitigated that risk based on the threat environment as it exists. Intelligence plays a huge role in being able to do that, um, being able to monitor your network, understanding your attack surface, not just knowing what the risk is, but at what scale it exists on your network. These are very important things. Um, and I think that that also, it, it, it might sound simplistic, but it also, communication plays a huge role in that because if it, it's one thing for the, the CISO or the, or the IT staff to be aware of something, it's another thing for it to be communicated up and down the chain so that in a crisis, people are aware of, you know, where are our sort of weak links or where are the most likely places we might see an issue, even if it's something as simple as, you know, spear phishing that takes, you know, uses a Ukraine theme to, to lure me into clicking a link or something like that. Um, all of those things play a role in actually managing the risk, which in my mind is the end result is that you're more resilient than just you know, like I said, a, it, we've recognized this right. or we bought this and we know that it's um, that, that in order to use it, we're incurring a certain amount of risk. But, OK, if that's the case and you have to go down that path because of a corporate mandate or, or government regulation, how do you make sure that you've got controls in place that allow you to continue to operate when that's degraded or to put other controls in place that pre prevent, you know, if that 
technology is compromised, it doesn't spread to the wider enterprise and things like that. Sounds like there's something for everyone to do at every level to really to really fight this. I mean, there really is. I mean, and it's it might sound like a cliche, especially to anybody that works in information security, but it's you know the the user also always plays a role. You you have to do what you can to save them from themselves, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you shouldn't also you know spend some time on your training and awareness program. Don't be afraid to communicate to your workforce, you know, because it. it Everyone's very busy these days, especially. And so, and this isn't a criticism, but not everyone's even aware of what's going on in the world. Not everyone reads the news to the level that some of the folks here, especially in D.C., do, <laughs> yeah. or that I get paid to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's an awareness of the fact that the ocean isn't necessarily a buffer in the way that it used to be. There, there might be a crisis in Ukraine, but it could also end up being a crisis in our own you know, maritime infrastructure as well. Um, either deliberately or just because, you know, some hacktivist group is taking advantage of the situation mm -hmm. because you're more likely to pay a ransom in a crisis, um, th things like that. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Um, and so looking at, looking at overall defenses, uh, how would you assess the cybersecurity defenses at U.S. ports compared to other critical infrastructure? I mean, it's really tough to compare um, industries like that, especially when you look at the maritime sector, which to my mind is not just the maritime sector. It, you know, you've got, you've got aviation nearby that comes into these ports. You've got the railheads. You've got the pipelines. You've got the manufacturing base that relies on it. It's sort of an umbrella sector in a lot of ways. And so... That's what makes it really tr tricky to to define that because they've got all the vulnerabilities that everyone else does. It, it's like a, a compounded situation, and that's not to you know make it sound scary again, but it's it, it's it requires, to my mind, a much greater awareness of the complexity of the threat environment than other sectors might, because there are so many more entry points into a port than there might be into other types of economic uh, entities. And so it, it, the way I would answer that question is by saying that, you know, it, it depends. Mm -hmm. And that's why it requires some study. Um, a West Coast port might have different considerations than an East Coast port. A port near a military base has different considerations than one that's mostly commercial or, you know, a very small port that that mostly caters to like the, the fishing industry or uh, gas, oil and gas. Um, you know, I've spoken at a couple different uh, maritime and, and port authority conferences and the just the range of different types and problem sets and everything from like New York, New Jersey with, you know, thousands of employees and, and a huge amount of activity to a, a small port in the Gulf that just does, you know, right. oil and gas or whatever. It's, 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 it's hard to compare because some of these ports have peers and others don't. And, mm -hmm. and in some cases it's um, a matter of one minute there's, there is no cyber threat and the next minute it shoots up to a massively elevated level because of some situation going on where, you know, Russia's angry because they can't sell their gas anymore. Right. Um, and so I know I kind of skirted all around that question, but it's, you know, it, I think that the root of the question is 
not so much how how are we prepared, it's what can we do to be prepared. And I think that starts at looking at the threat environment. And then you can go from there to understand, okay, now here's my IT posture. Here is the capabilities of malicious actors out there. How do I put as much distance between myself and those as possible? and then be prepared to deal with what's left. So we've talked a lot about ports um, and kind of how they can affect so many different different aspects um, and how kind of wide and far-reaching the maritime industry is. So in addition to ports, have you identified other areas within the maritime industry that are um, vulnerable and that should be alert for cybersecurity threats? Yeah, I think I, I, if I had to pick a couple, um, one I would go with anywhere it overlaps with energy because mm-hmm. that's become – that that's where – the tension exists right now when it comes to especially the current situation, also with some of the supply chain issues that are out there. Um, so that's one that I would say. If you're a port that deals heavily with the energy sector, you're doubly kind of in the in the in the crosshairs. Uh, the other would be this emerging area with all the operational technology that's being put out there. So the autonomous ships, um, you know, the all the different networked cameras and monitoring and industrial control system and that stuff it it produces an entirely new as um, aspect of the of the attack surface that you might have so not only do you have your traditional network computers and maybe legacy technology now you've got you know all these different systems that are supposed to lend themselves to greater efficiency but that also are additional entry points into your network um, for, for, you know, and, and for a while there, it was that there wasn't a lot of malware, there weren't a lot of capabilities that targeted this. That's not the case anymore, especially where, when you look at more advanced actors. Um, you know, oddly enough, this is an area the Iranians have looked at a lot because, um, you know, we've, there's been incidents with their um, ICS in the past, and so they've started to look at that as sort of fair game. They've, they've launched attacks on things like, um, local utilities and things like that. And so that's where network inventories, being able to continuously monitor your technology, um, pulling back from not just your firewall, but like once, if something's in, how do I detect it quicker? Um, you know, that's where stuff like that becomes a, a, a key consideration. Um, Interesting. And so we were talking a little bit earlier, too, about how now people think about the supply chain more than they did before. Does that apply to these kind of hacktivists and bad actors as well? Are they now seeing the supply chain as a new place to um, kind of attack a new, a new vulnerability? Yeah, I think it does in two ways. Um, you know, one is I don't think people understand the extent to which code that underlies a lot of software comes from all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, Ukraine was known for having sort of a third party cottage coding industry where larger companies would outsource coding for their, you know, well-known products to places like, like that. Um, so that creates kind of two exposures. You've got one, which is, are there any insider threat considerations around who's working on that code? Are they moonlighting? Are they selling code on the side to bad actors? Um, but then also an awareness among adversaries that, you know, rather than come right at a big vendor in the United States or a government entity in the United States, I can infiltrate the supply chain further downstream and I can maybe put some malware or some bad code in the stuff when it's being developed elsewhere. And so by the time it ends up in the larger product suite or at the, the place where it was being, you know, sold or shipped to, um, you know, I'm now undetected because I got in way earlier um, than than would have been difficult to do later on. Um, 
you know, I know that's a, a broad answer, but it, that just, to me, it speaks to the absolute complexity of the environment we're in, and it grows more complex by the day, um, which is why, you know, basics matter more than ever. Testing code, pre-deployment, um, being able to monitor that code. There's a lot of talk, talk in D.C. lately about zero trust. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of corporate entities have looked at that as well. Um, it's a worthy goal, but I don't know that there's been enough discussion about what that truly means. Um, the way we do risk management, as you mentioned earlier, um, that doesn't line up very well with zero trust because it zero is zero. So it doesn't mean, all right, I'm not going to have, I'm going to have 2% trust for certain things that have been on the network for a long time or new things that I trust for some reason. Mm-hmm. It requires you to be able to continuously monitor, to be able to feed in real time threat intelligence, uh, that takes into account emerging issues with existing technologies. Um, so it, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Trust no one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, if you're a CISO or a CIO, you've got to be, you have to have a healthy level of suspicion mm-hmm. of, of what's going on on your network all the time. Yeah. Um, so talking a little bit about response, uh, the Coast Guard has been increasing its resources for American maritime to stay safe from threats. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about these programs? Uh, do you think it's enough? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it, I think that the government is doing a much better job than maybe a decade or so ago to make a lot of different resources available to companies. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those at this stage are still, you know, regulations and frameworks that are just, these are things you should do. And that's not to, you know, disparage those as not worthwhile, but what, what's difficult is they do require resources to implement. It's one thing to know that a framework exists or that best practices exist. Um, one thing I think that the industry can do more is is really actually reach out. Like when the Coast Guard puts things in, and there is a, a, a large section of the Coast Guard's web presence that is now cybersecurity oriented, uh, uh, resources that are available to industry, um, and, and including hotlines that can be called in the event of certain types of incidents and things. And so, um, and this might be more obvious to some than others, but it is a two-way communication channel. I've spoken to the Coast Guard recently I've spoken to DHS. I've spoken to the Department of Transportation. Um, they really do want industry to reach out and let them know, like, hey, that regulation, um, it it works here, it doesn't work here, or I need resources to make that work. Um, can you tell me more about what my peers are doing? Um, so, you know, the government role, It's I think that they, the government's getting better at better at realizing that it's one thing to secure the government. It's another thing to secure the industry that the government relies on to be able to perform certain functions, as I mentioned early on. But then also an awareness that private sector entities such as my own, Mandiant, play a huge role too in bridging that gap because there's only so much the government can share in certain situations. There's only, you know, the government, despite the way it resources problems, they can't always send someone to help, you know, everyone either. So knowing how to use private sector cybersecurity to bridge the gap between government priorities and private sector needs. Um, you know, I think, you know, and it, and that's why it's it's been good to hear a lot from places like the Coast Guard. Um, I, I spoke recently with the, the CJ5, or CG5, sorry, um, Admiral Mauger. And so, I mean, these guys are spending a lot of time thinking about this and how do we use our roles and our powers to really help the private sector. And so what I would say to that really is, um, you know, it's, it's the simple answer, but, you know, spend the time to, to look those up and, or reach out to somebody who can, to, 
point you towards those resources and then really try to use them, test them out, uh, contact those, those organizations, look through that documentation, um, compare it to what you're getting from your security vendors um, and hold them accountable too and say, hey, you know, the Coast Guard says I should do this. What kind of threat intel do you have that can compare that to my actual enterprise? Um, you know, and, and really thinking through that now so that if this crisis, for instance, in Ukraine drags on for months and you, you Russia, you know, continues to escalate, you've prepared yourself for what those scenarios might look like as compared to those various data points. Very interesting. Um, so long term, what countries do you think represent the primary cyber threats to the United States? Or is it non-state actors? Yeah, I mean, I think the non-state actors thing is important to keep in mind um, because it, it, there is sort of a proliferation aspect of the cyber threat environment as well that is increasingly a, an issue. Um, things that used to be very difficult for non-state actors to achieve or for smaller nations that we might not think of as threats to achieve, um, that's, that's a a sort of given that doesn't doesn't hold up as much. There are more and more emerging nation states that are more and more interested in in what cyber can do for them because they see how successful countries like China, Russia, Iran, North Korea have been in using malicious cyber activity to achieve their national goals without having to resort to traditional espionage or, or direct conflict. Um, the, to backtrack a tiny bit to the first part of that, I mean, everyone's focused on Russia right now for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, that is not to say that no one's looking at China, but it's always important to remember that China's still out there. Mm -hmm. uh, China, in some ways, has met and surpassed the capabilities of Russia. They used to kind of always be the perpetual number two. Um, but I think that, especially given what we're seeing about, I guess, the hollowness of certain Russian capabilities in terms of their military performance and the lack of aggressive cyber activity we've seen so far, um, we, you know, we might be finally seeing a situation where China, you know, surpasses Russian capabilities and threat levels because they watch situations like this just like anyone else and they take notes on what works and what doesn't work. Um, it's also worth noting that they are much more of an economic competitor with the United States than Russia is. Um, the stuff that we're inflicting on Russia in terms of economic pain right now are not things we can do to China because our economies are way too interlinked. Um, but that's also a kind of a scary, most dangerous scenario to, to talk through because what if we are in a similarly heated confrontation with China? What would they be willing to do to bring that conflict to a close to their advantage as quickly as possible that Russia's not able to do? Um, and then I would be remiss not to mention the other two of the big four, which are Iran and North Korea. Um, we've seen North Korea kind of saber rattling with their missile program lately because they're upset they're not getting as much attention. Um, but they have a significant cyber capability. It's mostly focused on criminal activity, but they also have some destructive capabilities. Um, they also have less to lose than some of these other countries because they don't have the economic and, and diplomatic relationships. And that goes for Iran as well. Um, you know, when you're already persona non grata in most of the countries on earth, you don't have to worry as much about messing with their infrastructure. Um, and as I mentioned, Iran, because of their sort of ideological mindset, they're willing to do things that other countries aren't. Um, and so I know that four might seem like a lot, but those are the four you always have to think about. Um, but there are other countries, again, that the bar to entry is not as low as it used to be, or there are um, sort of exchanges that take place between some of these countries. You, if you look at like the UN vote mm -hmm. as to who condemned Russia and who didn't, 
It's worth noting that some of those countries that weren't willing to condemn Russia are also ones that have nascent malicious cyber programs. And so um, this environment is only going to get more complex. It's sort of you could use analogies around, you know, who got the first military airplanes. And then a few years later, you had everybody wanted them because they were useful. Um, Nuclear proliferation also is not an unuseful comparison because once one country has it, the rivals that in their region and and globally, they're going to want it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of this stuff is commodity at this point. You can get malware pretty openly that serves different functions. Um, Some of the more advanced threat groups, Russia, China, they mix in open source malware with custom malware. And so there's no shortage of reporting on this. And just as it's useful for defenders, it can be useful for adversaries to develop their toolkits as well. Well, that was terrifying. <laughs> Thank you. I think we're all uh, a little scared straight from from this and hopefully take your good advice about developing resiliency in our market. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'll use the, the the goofy phrase, you know, we scare because we care because <laughs> we, we spend all our time in the, the threat environment. And so it's we know what's out there, but we also know how you can go about mitigating a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's it may seem overwhelming, but you can pick a start point and you can start to address these things. I mean, it, it's the industry is very mature. The industry has a lot of resources available. Um, and so it's, it's never too late to start to address this stuff. It's good to hear. Uh, before we close off this episode of American Maritime Podcast, do you have anything you'd like to share about your work for our listeners or anything that we didn't touch on that you think they need to hear? Um, I mean, we covered a lot of ground and I, I, the questions were excellent. Um, I, I don't, if it, if I would say anything that's important for right now is that we we are potentially in the very early stages of this, which is good and bad news. The bad news is that it means that this could get uglier and this could drag out for a while and we might see Russia, you know, move from Europe into, you know, Western Europe and then further over and, and maybe even target our own infrastructure with their cyber capabilities. But like I said, the good news is because we are in the early phases and because Russia is seemingly on its back foot right now and not necessarily being as aggressive as they might be able to, um, th- there's stuff that can be done. We know a lot about Russian TTPs and capabilities. Um, a lot of the stuff that they are doing is stuff that is a mix of old and new. And so it, it can be addressed. Um, and then also I would like to, you know, just say that I, I've been very happy and excited to hear, you know, the maritime industry is spending so much time thinking about cybersecurity because it's, it's a, like I said, it is a overlapping part of so much of the economy and, if you look at history, um, you know, in past conflicts, it was all about being able to supply your armies. It was all about being able to keep your home front supplied. It was about, you know, leveraging economic power and ports were always front and center of that. So we're back in a situation where we're dealing with an adversary that is both capable and motivated to disrupt those types of activities in a way that we've not had to experience in a long time. Um, and so it's, it's all hands on, on deck right now. And, um, there's, you know, it, there's, there is help available and, and we're, you know, in a situation where Russia played its hand in such a way that they gave us a heads up that things are getting ugly and, and, you know, we can, we can do something about it. Jason, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your expertise. 
it has been so nice to, to learn more about these threats and to learn what the domestic maritime industry should do to take action on these. Um, we're very grateful for your time. That is all for this episode of American Maritime Podcast. We thank you for tuning in and encourage you to share it with others you know that also care about American Maritime. I'm Sada Fuentes, and this is the American Maritime Podcast, signing off.